Good afternoon. I'm Rhonda Finan, and this is the Healthy Options Program right here on WERU Community Radio. Today, we focus on the aging brain and how to stay healthy and resilient. And by the way, this is for everybody of all ages. Don't, you know, don't go anywhere if you're under 20. Okay. Our guest today is Dr. Susan Weary. She is a board-certified geriatric psychiatrist with almost 40 years of clinical experience. And as a clinician, educator, policymaker, advocate, and advisor, Dr. Weary has shared her work with students, professionals, older adults, and family caregivers throughout the United States and abroad. Until recently, Dr. Weary served as Chief of Geriatrics at the University of New England College of Osteopathic Medicine. She now directs Aging Maine. It's a geriatric workforce enhancement project, and we'll learn what that means shortly, I'm sure. And that uh, the goal there is to create a more age-friendly health system. And yes, as I said, we'll learn about that in a bit. Recognizing that impacts of severe isolation and extreme loneliness can have profound negative consequences, Dr. Weary initiated a weekly virtual drop-in session during the COVID-19 pandemic, specifically for people living with dementia and their caregivers. She also offered a YouTube series on self-care for frontline staff in nursing homes. We have a lot to talk about. And we'll uh, start right now. Welcome to Healthy Options, Dr. Susan Weary. So glad you took the time and are able to join us today. Thank you, Rhonda. And thanks for the invitation to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Yes. So I, I guess starting right off, you are now doing something called Aging Maine. And what is the... Um, Geriatric Workforce Enhancement Project. Just now, ha happy to talk about it. We are in the fifth year of a five-year project. This five-year project was funded by HRSA, better known as HRSA, but also known as the Health Resources and Services Administration, one of the federally funded programs that is trying to address the problem or address the issue of the need for an age-capable workforce. So HRSA funds this thing called a GWEP or a GWEP, Geriatric Workforce Enhancement Project, which really has this sort of triple aim of transforming current primary care practices so to become more age-friendly, to train the next generation of health professionals across all disciplines so that they are more age capable. And then frankly, my favorite part is to actually educate and empower older adults ourselves so that we can both promote our own health and advocate for a more age-friendly health system. So it the GWEP um, really does encompass all three of those aims, and I'd be happy to talk more about our various partners in this effort, but that's the big picture of what it is. And in our last year, we have really um, developed even more of a heightened focus on the aging brain, which is why you're hearing more about that these days. So. You know, you you mentioned um, in and in the bio, we talked about how you created a way for people not to be so isolated, and uh, during the pandemic, which, you know, for some is still a very, very, very active thing that they're dealing with in their lives. 
let's talk about what that means. Let's just start right there. Isolation. What have, did you notice changes as a clinician and what do we know happened in the last number of years as we, uh, we were all forced in a way to, uh, to change our life? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that even before the pandemic, a great deal was being written about the social isolation, particularly of older adults, particularly older adults in rural areas, who were finding it increasingly difficult to maintain certain social connections. The pandemic accelerated and exacerbated that in pretty obvious, I think, and major ways, which was to instill in people by necessity for a time a certain amount of anxiety about being out and around others. But unfortunately, during the pandemic, that message was so strongly given that people wouldn't even go outside of their own homes, where it would have been actually safer and healthier to, say, walk around the neighborhood with a mask. But the messaging, I think, around the importance of separation was such that people really became afraid of one another, became afraid of the public space, even if it weren't a crowded public space. And one of the things that we know about the brain, again, all ages, nothing unique to aging about this, is that when uncertainty and fear are triggered, it takes an act of intervention really to modify them, right? To modulate them. And people were not able to utilize their usual strategies for dealing with fear and uncertainty, not knowing what to do. So those strategies might include getting together with family or friends, right? And that was off the table for a while. It might have included going to a social space, whether it was a senior center or a social club or to the movies or a restaurant or whatever. So some of the, the ways that we have of mitigating our discomfort were closed off, and that was hugely problematic. And then you add to some of the pressures, the fact that people's children were home from school that people who maybe are used to having a certain amount of distance and thinking about the real challenge of intimate partner violence um, during the pandemic, that, that the being together in ways that people were unaccustomed to just kept adding to the burden of isolation. Then, interestingly to me, there was this assumption that certain populations, certain marginalized populations, might not use virtual connection, right? So there are these um, myths, if you will, or at least assumptions that were out there that older adults don't use Zoom or Skype or virtual reality. Then there were some assumptions at accurate assumptions that not everybody has broadband, not everybody has a smartphone, not everybody has um, an iPad or a computer. But to me, the silver lining of all of this is that it taught us a lot about ourselves. It taught us about ways to be in connection. It taught us about problems around access to the internet, access to um, virtual connection needed to be improved. And so we began making some investments in that. Um, 
one one population, of course, were people living with dementia, and um, and again, the assumption that people would not know how or would not wish to use. Um, Zoom or other kinds of video conferencing. So I could speak a little bit more about that or? Well, I think that's really interesting as we get into this idea of the healthy brain. Um, so let's start. Yes, I, I definitely just, yeah, since we're, we're discussing this and you are a specialist in a way uh, with working with the people who have been diagnosed with various levels and different diagnosis of dementia, let's let's follow up on that and we'll dovetail into what healthy healthy aging is and and uh, but I think this is really important for people to to hear. Yes, okay, great. I because I just wanted to say um uh, a word or two about our virtual drop-in center and what happened after that. Sure. So, I um uh, am on the board of the Dementia Action Alliance, which is a national advocacy organization. And one of the asks that that our um, folks living with dementia had of me was to hold an education session about the pandemic, about COVID, about the virus, the very, very early days, and then also about the vaccine and whether they should get vaccinated. So I held a couple of informational sessions for people living with dementia. The turnout was much more than we thought that it would be. And people asked if we could keep meeting. And so we did. We met for a year and we it evolved into a much broader discussion about living with dementia. And even though it started with information about the pandemic, what was special about it was that after a year, I said, I think you guys can do this. We call it a drop in with Dr. Susan. I think you guys can do this without me. You're dropping in, talking to each other. And it became this really potent peer support group that goes on to this very day. And then people said, we're tired of just talking. Let's do some virtual engagement. How about a poetry club? How about a laughter club? How about a jokes club? Whatever. And I think many people were surprised to hear that people with dementia could um, initiate and maintain some of those activities with very minimal support. So that's really yes. what I just wanted to add. Well, I think that's really important. We do have a, I, I imagine many of us have a, a stereotypical idea of what someone with dementia is. And perhaps you could just uh, clarify some and, and, and uh, help us uh, open our minds, as it were, to what what the reality is. What there are different stages of dementia. Not everybody who's diagnosed with some cognitive issues is, uh, you know, by tomorrow going to forget who their children are. Or, uh, I mean, isn't that a, a big? It's a big fear, I would imagine. And and many people who are listening may say, "Well, I don't want that because you know, within a minute, I'm not myself." Yeah, Alrenda, you are so right. And thanks for the opportunity, because I'm kind of on a mission to help people understand uh, dementia, perhaps in a slightly different way than a lot of the public messaging. So just so we're all on the same page, or at least a similar page, let's say what dementia is, right? Because dementia has many, many causes. And when we talk about dementia, we're really talking about a syndrome 
that has an impact on thinking, remembering, feeling, behaving, problem solving, judgment, the whole host of things that we call our cognitive function, right? What's our brain good for? It does those things. And with dementia, you have a syndrome where there are significant enough impairments in some of those domains to impact day-to-day function. That's really like the textbook definition of dementia, a syndrome, multiple domains of impact, not all at the same time, and not all due to Alzheimer's disease. Now, Alzheimer's disease is the most common kind of dementia, and so people tend to use it interchangeably. And because the Alzheimer's Association was out front 20 years ago, really talking about dementia, a lot of times people think that's all dementia is. That's one misconception I'd hope to clear up. So listeners, think of it as a syndrome, lots of different causes, and lots of different kinds and rates of decline. So to your point about you don't have early dementia one day and forget your kids the next, what I should say is that there are people who are living with dementia and have been doing so well, have been thriving with dementia for 12, 15, 18 years. That would be dementia, say, due to the Alzheimer's type or maybe due to vascular dementia what people used to call hardening of the arteries or something to do with blood flow to the brain, right? And so those are the two common ones, vascular and Alzheimer's disease, and then a kind of mixed type. But people will also have heard about Lewy body and frontotemporal dementia. All of those dementias present with very different initial symptoms, and they all progress at different rates, and they all leave the person with residual strengths. So the new messaging in dementia really is not to just focus on what the person can't do, but instead, or in addition, to focus on what they can still do. And that is, quite frankly, in my career, kind of a new way of thinking about it. So there, yes, I I love that. And, you you know, um, my audience, we do a lot of trauma informed information around here. And one of the the first things you do um, in in the trauma-informed method is if someone has had a difficult situation, you might start with, when did you know you were safe? When did you know you were okay? Because that's that sense of, of, I'm I'm capable, I'm here, I'm surviving. I think it, it sounds similar in a way, it's different, but it's similar okay, what is still available? What, what, what's going well? What's going well for you? What are you enjoying? How are you living your life? Yeah, that is exactly right. I think that, I do think that that similarity is there. And it's there because I think both for people who have survived and who are, who are surviving or have survived a traumatic experience, continue to find sources of joy and purpose and meaning. And some people may need assistance in doing that. Some people may grow into that on their own. Some people will need work. For people living with dementia, I think that there is a uh, absolutely a period of grieving what might have been, acknowledging the loss, a desire sometimes, some anger about why me. And so there are 
it's not just like stages of emotions. There are a lot of feelings about anything that happens to us in life, right? And getting dementia is is one of those things. I, I, and just just for a moment, if people have just tuned in, I want to remind you, you are listening to the Healthy Options Program right here on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're speaking with geriatric psychiatrist, Dr. Susan um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Weary, <laughs> Dr. Susan Weary. Oh, well, was that diagnosable? Oh my goodness, isn't that what happens? <laughs> uh-oh, uh-oh. Oh, Rhonda, what a great opportunity! To, <laughs> this is good. <laughs> to pivot back to the well, what's normal aging? What's normal? Thank you. There we go. Okay. Uh oh. Uh oh. That, that is what Perfect. people ask all the time. And um, for those of you who have been on the program since the beginning, you'll know that uh, Rhonda also said, (laughs) don't switch your dial if you're under 20. This is for you, too. And (laughs) I'm glad she said that because I do think that what people forget is that our age changes across the lifespan, right? And the, the decline, though small, in memory and the speed of memory and the ease of memory is measurable in decline from about age 25 on. But it's not until we get the first gray hair or we get our bifocals or whatever that we start talking about lapses of memory or difficulty finding the right word or, oh my gosh, what's your name as a senior moment, right? And I think that that is connected in some ways to our ageist beliefs about what it means to grow old. But here's the skinny on age-associated brain changes, okay? So from about age 25 on, there is a measurable decline in the speed and ease with which we remember. Up to about that point, you've got a brain that acts like a sponge effortlessly. You remember things, you soak it up, you can learn, and there's a speed of learning. And sometimes efficient, sometimes not so efficient, but it's effortless. And so you don't really focus much on how you learn or um, adopt good learning habits necessarily. So that is something that is across the lifespan. And in fact, by the time you are in your 60s, 70s, 80s, it is more noticeable to you as well as to people around you that short-term memory and recall that other aspect of memory is less efficient, less sharp, less quick than it used to be. And so a lot of times people, excuse me, will will worry that that is the first sign of dementia. So we're going to talk about the sort of difference in that. And I think um, one of the ways it's often articulated is that if you sometimes walk into a room and say, what did I come in here for? That that's probably, I'm using air quotes, probably (laughs) normal age associated changes. But if you walk into the room and say, where am I? That might be a little bit more worrisome. Now, some clinicians, some of my colleagues would say, well, if you wait until you don't know where you are, you've missed the opportunity for early detection. So Hmm. how extreme to make these examples, I'm never entirely sure. But what I can say is that 
when we think about age-associated changes, you can rest assured that you will not memorize things as easily. So if you're a person, for example, who used to like memorizing poetry, and you try to memorize poetry now, and you used to memorize poetry after three or four reads or one or two or whatever, it'll now take you eight or 10. What happens with most people, older people, is that they give up in frustration very quickly because they're so accustomed to things coming a little more quickly. And we are a kind of speed-driven society. It's our culture. We like things to be efficient. We like things to be fast. And we're proud of it when they are. Did you see how quickly I got that, right? And so we not only um, value it, we admire it, and we are disappointed when we're not as quick. We are not as quick when we are older. We are slower. And if we take the time to remember, and if others let us take the time to learn, there actually is no fall off in our ability to learn. We can learn, we do learn, it'll just be a little longer. You know, I was giving this talk once uh, in uh, a, a local library, and um, I think this will play on the radio, I, it certainly would, would play visually. And a man in the audience said, yeah, but you know, I used to be like this. And he's snapping his fingers very quickly. And I said, you know, you're going to learn a new rhythm, <laughs> but you great. can still snap, that's right? It. And we that, are, you know, that's rhythm and blues right there. Yes. You got it. You got <laughs> it, right? So, yes, slower, less efficient, harder to remember. But on the other side, age associated change means greater knowledge, more potential for wisdom and absolutely greater capacity for problem solving because you've had more opportunities. And we really did see this during COVID that while older adults certainly suffered isolation and the effects of social isolation, the loss of social connection, the group that was most impacted were the 15 to 34 year olds. And it is that group that is suffering higher rates of depression and anxiety than older adults. And it's not that it was easy for us but we have more tools, we have more ability, and we have the knowledge that as bad as things get, there is a certain impermanence in every situation and things change. And so older adults really do, can, have learned from their experience and become better problem solvers. But typically what happens, and if you are an older adult listening to this, I hope that you will do the following. Oftentimes, older adults are embarrassed, feel challenged by trying to learn technology. It might be they're trying, you're trying to download an app on your smartphone. It might be that you're trying to master some new bit of technology. And it is likely that you will ask someone for assistance. If the person you ask for assistance is a young person, it is likely that they will say, do this, do that, push this, push that. Um, <laughs> slide it, whatever. And, uh, and at some point, at least in my experience, you'll say, oh, I can't get this. And they will say, oh, just give it to me. I'll do it. I'll do it. Right? There's this mutual impatience. 
the older adult says, oh, this is too hard or is embarrassed or they sense the young person's impatience. And the young person is like, I could do this so much faster myself. Please resist the urge to let them take your phone out of your hand or the keyboard away from you and say to them instead, this great old line from the 60s, if you give a man a fish, he will eat today. If you teach him to fish, you will eat for a lifetime. So I'd actually like to learn how to use this tool. Now, let's start again. And I am quite serious about this because too often I just see this people wanting to be helpful. It's not malicious, but it is impatient. So age-associated change, you're going to be slower, not going to be as quick, but you're going to be smarter, and you will have the conditions for wisdom. It's not guaranteed when you get old, but at least you have the opportunity. <laughs> so uh, the other aspect of the brain is um, is that it's it's elastic. It, we, the nerve nerves, right? The brain cells continue to regenerate. You can create new pathways. So that's how you can learn. So that's another thing. I'm I'm, I'm building new pathways now. You have to just give me that phone back. You <laughs> whoever you are, you whippersnapper, yes, whippersnapper. I know. I, I, I didn't want to say it, but I did. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, that, I them for you. Yeah. Give me that phone. Yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's so, you know it's so true, and uh, and it's interesting, Rhonda. You know, um, certainly in the early um, days of my career, as you mentioned, I have been at this for about forty years, and even when I was in medical school, we were taught that. Um, that there was no such thing as neuroplasticity, which is what you're describing. We were told that, you know, you have as many brain cells as you're going to have, protect them, preserve them, because once they die, that's all you have. And that turns out not to be true. There is this phenomenon of, you've, you've articulated it, called neurogenesis. Great word. Excellent. Um, you know, brain cell beginning. Just like the book itself, the book of Genesis, you've got <laughs> neurogenesis, the making of new brain cells. And that is something that we've learned in my career. The other thing we've learned is what you talked about, which is plasticity, neuroplasticity. We can and do make new neural connections. So we've got brain cells and we're making those. We have the opportunity to make connections between them learning, and it won't happen by itself. It won't happen in an impoverished environment, and it won't happen by itself across the lifespan. So if you raise a baby in a completely impoverished environment, then their opportunity for neurogenesis, for making new synapses, which of course are these connections and building this great neural network, will be diminished. And the same is true for the old brain. Now, um, uh, we should probably talk about, or I would like to talk about, uh, how you do that, how you enhance neuroplasticity, how you enhance neurogenesis, how you make those connections, and how you have a healthier brain. Um, and so if I may, I'll please uh, a few words about that. Let yeah. me, just for those tuning in, um, and we'll, let's see if we can do this this time. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and this is the Healthy Options Program right here on WERU Community Radio. We're speaking with Dr. Susan Weary, 
about aging well and how we can be resilient and help others to be resilient. And we are now talking about how to how to how to enhance our brains. So yeah, you know, I, I in my training as as an acupuncturist, I had a teacher, Japanese, uh, I do Japanese style acupuncture, and he kept saying, do this treatment on all the elderly over 40. <laughs> so all right, and so everybody's like, well, what is what is aging? And and we said that earlier, if you just tuned in, that our brain starts changing at 25. So mm-hmm. this is very pertinent uh, to, to everybody, to all of our listeners. So please, doc, Dr. Weary. Yes. So, you know, I think most most of what I'm going to say, people have probably heard before. So I'm always looking for ways to help you hear it anew, right? Because there is a phenomenon going on right now um, called dementia worry, which is a unique kind of health anxiety about the possibility of getting dementia. And I have a a suspicion that part of the reason that we are seeing really this spike in this particular health anxiety, dementia worry, is because there has been in the last year a very aggressive marketing campaign of certain medications that are said to protect your brain and or to prevent getting dementia, or if you have dementia, keep it from getting worse. And the um, net result of this is that otherwise completely healthy individuals are very afraid. So here's what I would like um, to kind of tee up for people. With respect to a healthy brain, what is good for your whole body, what's good for your heart is also good for your head. And that's what I meant by some of what I'm going to say you've heard before. You've heard it from your family, you've heard it from what you read, you've heard it from your doctors, whatever. And that is that uh, eating well is important. Getting plenty of exercise is really important for your brain. And I'm going to say specifically what you need to do about that in a moment. Increasingly, we are aware of the importance of sleep. And for older adults, it looks like the magic number is somewhere between seven and nine hours per night because it helps reset things, it helps consolidate memories, it helps boost our immune system. So the the big ones right now that we know are really effective in two dimensions, making the most of the brain you've got and preventing dementia. So always remember when people are talking about things, they're talking about how to get uh, optimized current brain function and then, which we would call health promotion, right? And then also dementia prevention. So some studies that have been done will talk about, this is really good for your brain. It may or may not prevent dementia, and that's okay. It's good enough to have a really well-functioning brain right now. So exercise. With respect to physical exercise, it looks like the data is you need 150 minutes per week that's 30 minutes a day times five days a week in order to both optimize brain function and reduce the risk of getting dementia due to Alzheimer's or due to vascular disease. Now, a lot of people because of heart conditions can't do 30 minutes sustained of aerobics. And for, for people like that, it's important to talk to your doctor about a progressive 
cardiac rehab campaign that will get you up to the ability to have an accelerated heart rate. The great thing about the brain is that it's very forgiving. It doesn't care if you do those 30 minutes in 10 minute blocks, three times a day, five minute blocks, six times a day, you wanna take six, five minute walks, your brain will be very grateful. But physical exercise, aerobic in nature is, is preventative for dementia. It is also, um, uh, also supports healthy brain function in the present. Stress reduction is critical. When we are under stress, we have this kind of steady drip, drip, drip of cortisol, a stress hormone. And that stress hormone actually shrinks a part of the brain known as the hippocampus. And if you learn that word, you're going to have some neurogenesis and some neuroplasticity. <laughs> so the hippocampus, part of the brain involved in short-term memory. And the good news about that is that when you address the stress, the hippocampus rebounds, it restores. So stress reduction, particularly during the pandemic, right? And particularly during the turmoil of the last, pick your favorite target, the last 10 years, the last five years, the last two years, we're living in very stressful times. And so a lot of people find of any age but they're just not functioning the way they'd like. And I think in part, that's related to this stress hormone. So then you think, okay, well, what are the ways to alleviate stress, right? And, you know, I encourage people who feel like they're living under a lot of stress, which again is most of us, is to really take charge. Make a list of everything, in fact, that stresses you and cross out the things that you can't do anything about. And if you keep exposing yourself, I mean, I'll just point to the world situation, almost any continent you look on, there's a war. Not much we can do about that in terms of getting it to stop, but we can reduce our exposure to the amount of information that we imbibe about it. So we have some control over that. So we wanna reduce stress. The other thing that's good for cortisol and why I went off on that slight tangent <laughs> is because sleep helps to reduce cortisol as well. So exercise, sleep, and added benefit of exercise. If you do your aerobic exercise before three or five in the afternoon, it will help you get a good night's sleep. If you exercise later in the day, then it might have you a little activated at nighttime. So you want to do it early. Okay, we've got sleep. We've got stress reduction by reducing exposure to the stressor. And then there are things like mindfulness meditation, which I think many people have heard about. I won't elaborate, um, but uh, I, I can if you want. Breathe um, in and breathe out. Yeah. You can breathe in and breathe out. That's exactly right. Um, as another uh, strategy for, for stress reduction. And then one that I am increasingly impressed with, and that is the power of nature. So we know that going outside, even on a cloudy day, even on a day with short sunlight, that our exposure to natural the natural cycles of light and dark is very good for our brains. 
we know that if we take those walks in nature and do it in a mindful way, which means paying attention to the smell of the air, the smell of the leaves, the smell of whatever it is, smell of the ocean, the sound of the ocean, the rustling of leaves, whatever it is, that when you make that a mindful in nature experience, that it has a very positive impact and benefit on brain chemistry. A positive environment of brain chemistry allows more of those connections to be made. And so you can begin, I don't want to reduce everything to neurochemistry or biology, but point to fact, we can restore the actual physical health um, of our brains through nature, through sleep, through mindfulness practice, through meditation, through exercise. And the other um, um, activities for which we have a good evidence base are things like living in connection with others, being socially connected, maintaining contact with family and friends um, is known to have a positive impact on the brain. And I think particularly, or in part, because of its positive impact on our mood. And we know that in the absence of depression and the absence of anxiety, our brains work better. So social connection is important. And if you ask most older people ourselves, what just from a subjective sense is good for their brains, they'll tell you having a reason to get up in the morning. Purpose and meaning is critical to brain health and to optimizing our aging brains. I haven't mentioned the usual, don't smoke, don't drink, or if you drink, drink only in moderation. Um, but um, I will. So, so, yes, all of the, what we call brain food. I remember um, my mother's just here, we're having fish. It's brain food. That was, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thanks mom. <laughs> <laughs> have a carrot have a carrot yes yeah, exactly good for your eyes right good for your brain yeah, that's it right yeah, i think i was eight years old we're having brain food today here yes yeah what a good mother absolutely good mother <laughs> are there things that you recommend seriously about and i mean we hear about fish oil for the heart are we uh doing you know that kind of thing there are no supplements that i recommend because i'll tell you the data is just not there hmm. however do I pay attention to um, antioxidants and keep them in my diet? You betcha. Um, so big fan of, of antioxidants, big fan of Maine blueberries, um, and, um, and definitely a big fan of the Mediterranean diet. Um, the Mediterranean diet, of course, is the one that is heavy in fish, um, heavy in grains, um, and um, olive oils and omega-3s and so forth. But I just don't think the evidence is there for supplementing essentially a healthy, um, a healthy diet. And I think that the Mediterranean diet is probably um, among the best. There is another diet for people who have high blood pressure called the DASH diet, very similar to the Mediterranean diet. And I um, don't know enough about it to give you the particulars, but please do talk to your um, provider um, if you have an opportunity to do so. Because people with high blood pressure are at particularly high risk for that dementia that we call due to vascular disease, right? multi-infarct dementia or hardening of the arteries. And there actually are definitely dietary um, steps that you can take to improve your blood pressure, add to that exercise, and then you have 
reduced your risk of getting dementia. The other side, you hear all the time about supplements and vitamin D is popular, vitamin E is popular. Um, and I look at this data all the time and it's just, it's just not there. Hmm. I always add this caveat though. As we age, we become less alike one another than at any other point in our lives. There is the greatest inter-individual variation as at any other time. And it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, we, we have different lived experience. We have different environmental exposures. We have different genetics. We carry this through. We, there, are, there are many reasons that there's this um, sort of increasing heterogeneity, as we call it, or, you know, differences and um, and so I know there are people who take supplements, who swear by them, who are quite certain they didn't feel very sharp, and they take some whatever they some some recommended supplement, and they swear by it. So you know, as you read about it on the internet or in magazines or wherever you get you get your information or in social media with your friends, absolutely you will find people who say. She doesn't know what she's talking about. I took these tablets. And you know what? That person is also right. When I talk about the data, I'm talking about thousands of people. And if we look at thousands of people and we give 500 or 1,000 of them a placebo and another 1,000 of them the active ingredient of something, we don't find a lot of difference. We don't find enough difference to put people on supplements. So that's what I mean by the data isn't there, but absolutely the testimonials are there. On the other hand, the data is 100% there for exercise, for the power of nature, for mindfulness practice, for stress reduction. Data is there for all of us, and um, that can definitely improve brain function. You know, I want to go back to, yes, uh, to two of the things you said. Um, and But before that, I do want to remind people or inform people that coming up tomorrow, you are going to be uh, uh, doing a couple of, uh, of conversations of some program uh, on the aging brain. And if you happen to be in Augusta, um, between what 10 and 11 at the Lithgow Public Library, you can hear even more with uh, Dr. Weary. And it's a big day. Um, or if you're in Winthrop between 12 and 1 p.m., you can go to uh, the Winthrop United Methodist Church. And this is all on uh, Thursday, December 7th, by the way. And if you are between 2.30 and 3.30 around Auburn Public Library, you can go and hear uh, Dr. Weary as well, discussing a uh, presentation about much of what we're talking about here, if you want more. Um, just wanted to put that out there, and you can get information at agingmaine.org, and that's either M-A-I-N-E or M-E dot org. Um, so um, that just wanted to let people know that that's, that's happening. And if you just tuned in, we are in fact speaking with Dr. Susan Weary, and she is a... Uh, a, 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 a psychiatrist. It's happening again. A geriatric, but that's okay. I, I just learned that. It's okay. A geriatric psychiatrist and um, knows and, and is sharing with us all about techniques for aging well and having our, our brain stay healthy. I'd like to go back to uh, 
well, two two things that are interrelated. One you said is a reason to get up in the mat in the morning, or uh, something having something that's meaning, making meaning in your in your life. Um, you, I've heard you uh, t- say things like, you know, taking time for reflection and knowing something that you want to share. And wh- what do we mean by that? Is that being part of a group or is that be having artistic expression? How, how would you really explore that a little bit more about having meaning in our lives? Yeah, let me um, uh, let me do it with a story, if I may. Please. I, I've been interested in aging all my life, and I've uh, and I have had the good fortune to be around people older than myself uh, through most of my life, and um, and I would always ask them the question of those whom I thought, oh, I'm kind of looking up to you, and I'd like to be like you when I get older, and I would say, you know, to what do you attribute successful aging, or what you're experiencing as successful aging, etc. And invariably, people would say. Things like, um, oh, my secret is I refuse to get old. My secret is I'm staying young. My secret is I'm going to be young at heart, as if only the youth are entitled to vitality. And I hated this answer. And I would always say, yeah, you know, that's not good enough for me. I want to feel vital as I age. Well, one of the persons that I read in this uh, regard was a man named Viktor Frankl. I'm sure many of your listeners are uh, familiar with Viktor Frankl, um, wrote a kind of therapy called logotherapy. And basically, he said that we are by our very nature, free, spiritual, and driven by the will to meaning. And so we were, we are, I think, by nature, designed and we have the capacity to be contemplative. So one thing I mean by it is to um, play with the idea of simply being and not always doing. That it is enough to be with the experience of getting older. When my mother was 86, she called me one day, and my mother and I were very close. She called me one day and she said, I hope you're happy now. I'm old. And I said, what do you mean by that? Because she was one of those persons I admired who always said, I refuse to get old. And at 86, she calls and says, I hope you're happy. I'm old now. And what she described was her experience of having lost one too many friends. Because one of the things about being healthy and happy is that you will bury a lot of people. And so she had the experience of outliving most of her brothers and sisters. She had the experience of outliving her best friend. And it was one loss too many. And what she was really describing was not getting old, but getting depressed, getting sad, grieving, mourning. But those were the things she associated with the notion of being old. So she did what she always did and started cleaning. Started cleaning everything, cleaning out her closets, looking for stuff. And in the course of that, she came across a um, Japanese rising sun flag that had been given to her by a hometown boy during World War II. My mother was in the Marine Corps. And she discovers this flag that she had not thought about for years. Flash forward in my story, and I'll tell you that she had, it had been signed by three young men. She tracked down one of them who was alive and not well, living in New Jersey. We went to visit him. And after that visit, she wanted to tell her story of Leonard and about the rising sun flag. So she said to me at 86, 
will you show me, will you um, type this up for me if I write it out? And I said, no, use my computer. I got to go to work. Now, this is, I have to say, kind of the way my mother and I talk to each other. It's sort of a, a gentle version of tough love. And my mother, over the course of a summer at 86, learned to use a computer the same way she learned a typewriter, hunt and peck. She went on to write five novels, two memoirs, started a senior uh, writing group at, in her hometown of Florida, <laughs> and, um, and found new purpose and meaning in mentoring young women Marines. Now, you'd have to know my mother to know how remarkable this was. She was a, a, a person who had graduated high school, but was always a little uncomfortable about the fact that she hadn't gone to college. She hadn't really thought much about her language skills, but she had a story to tell. And that's really the take home here. Everybody has a story to tell. And the older you are, the more stories you have to tell. So what do I think people do for purpose and meaning? We make meaning through our stories. So find a good listener, swap stories with your friends, write them down. These days, we have so many ways of telling our story. You could record it, you could video it, you could, you could write it down, you could go on Zoom and record it. There are just so many ways to tell your story. And I encourage everybody to tell their story as one path to meaning and one path to purpose. Now, the, the funny thing about my mother and her writing is that, um, you know, she wrote these novels because she wanted to write love stories that didn't have sex in them. That didn't have what? Didn't have sex in them. <laughs> and she looked, you know, this, this is a woman who loved the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> um, and she had very romantic notions, but I'll tell you the 20th century and then the 21st just about did her in. And, um, and so she wrote these love stories that no one will ever read, nor does she care and or nor did she care. And um, and it is so it was so instructive to me at 90 she started bragging about being old. She would say to people, how old do you think I am? And they might guess 80s because she was quite fit um, and quite sharp and quite funny. And, you know, and we attribute those things to younger yeah. old people. And so she would say, I'm almost 91. And it was this interesting phenomenon, right, of adding years where she used to want to subtract them. Mm. And I just find the whole aging thing so interesting. So what I ask people or what I encourage people to do with respect to meaning and purpose is find it. Think about it. Talk with your friends about being with aging. Age with intention. Age with authenticity. Age with an idea that this is interesting. It's interesting at an individual level. And frankly, it's interesting at a societal level, because we are at a moment in history that has never been seen before. There are more people over the age of 65 than there are under five. That is historic. And we don't yet know what it means. So I think um, 
that is, um, those are a couple of ways. Mm -hmm. Certainly some people find their, their meaning through spirituality, through faith-based practice, but uh, and it certainly can be around, as you alluded to, through artistic. Not everybody uses words. I, I have a bias about them. I love words, but there's music is one of the most potent. <laughs> I probably should have mentioned that Mo music is one of the most potent ways to stimulate neurogenesis. Um, and um, learning a new musical instrument led me to pick up the saxophone 10 years ago when I heard it was really good for neurogenesis. It was not so good for my relationships, but um, you know, there's always a trade-off. Oh, well, we'll have to we'll have to talk about that. And yes, it's, it's time for him to get a jazz band. Uh, in, in there you go. Yeah, there you go. Well, to be we'll, we'll discuss this later, uh, Doctor Weary. Okay. <laughs> you know, some people are having trouble with the 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 um, the sense of getting back into being social um, since the pandemic. But what kind of what would you? Uh, we only have a couple of minutes. But what would you recommend that? that for people who are, who through the pandemic, who are having trouble making a transition. Um, yeah. well, it's a great, it's a great question, Rhonda, because we do see that so often, don't we? You know, a couple of things that I recommend is um, identify people around whom you're already comfortable and do your first like social outings or coming out to be with them. That's number one. Number two, don't, hesitate to ask somebody else to wear a mask and wear a mask if you are more comfortable wearing a mask, even if there's no COVID in your neighborhood. If there are things that you did to be feel secure about, just let people know I'm still masking or I'm not masking. Is that going to be okay with you? Keep distance. Kind of the things that we were doing during is if you're at that end of the spectrum where you're still very anxious about getting COVID, then ease into it, select your, um, select your company wisely. That is to say, people with whom you're already comfortable. The other thing that I would say to ease back in is to not set yourself a, an expectation of multiple social engagements in a short period of time. Make a smart goal of, by the end of this month, I will have done X. And then map it out to do one event a week. You know, we're coming into the holiday season, which has their own pressures for so many people. And, um, and this is a time to really exercise your agency. This is really a time to exercise your choice and to say, I'm comfortable with this. I'm not comfortable with that. I like small groups. I don't like large crowds. What, whatever it is, each individual knows that they, um, uh, can control that for themselves. And frankly, I think we have forgotten the plain old telephone. There are still some people with landlines. They're fun to talk on. They're much more, they're easier to hold. <laughs> they're easier to hear than, than smartphones for many people. And um, so don't hesitate to set up just old fashioned phone calls. Not everything has to be a Zoom call. Not everything has to be video. Um, I also really encourage people just for the fun of it, to write letters. I never encourage anybody to write email. <laughs> That's a pain <laughs> of everyone's existence. But but seriously, to, to use all the tools for connecting that used to make us feel good, 
Mm. We engage with them. So what do we ask? There's also something about the hand-brain connection. Oh, by the way. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, Rhonda. You know, this is very hard to convince medical students of, I have to say, (laughs) at the university, that note writing, there is such good evidence that it helps with retention. There is something in that, you know, brain-motor connection that helps learning. But Try persuading um, or convincing students. They're just not there. Um, The other thing I would say is that, oh, gosh, there's so many things we haven't talked about. So I encourage people to come on December the 7th to to a church or library near you and uh, catch Aging Brain because there really are so many ways to um, talk about our cognitive stimulation, and uh, but I fear we are running out of time. Well, we have uh, we have a uh, we have um, a, a moment. Uh, we we definitely have another minute, and uh, I wanted to just um, tell people that what uh, Dr. Weary is referring to is uh, the three talks she's doing on Thursday, December seventh. And one is uh, from 10 to 11 a.m. at the Lithgow Public Library in Augusta, 12 to 1 at the at the uh, no, it's the yes, uh, at the Winthrop United Methodist Church in Winthrop, 2.30 to 3.30 at the Auburn Public Library in Auburn, Maine. So um, uh, Dr. Weir will be driving to each of these, I assume. <laughs> Good for you. Um, and you can get that information on uh, agingmaine.org. You can also find many of uh, of your podcasts at your very own website, um, which is uh, what is Susan, uh, www.susanweary, that's W-E-H-R-Y-M-D.com. Yes, W-E-H-R-Y, Dr. Weary, susanweary.com. And um, yeah, I think that there's just so much more to discuss. You'll have to come back. I'd love to. Please do. And there's a multitude. Here we go. I'm going to just, uh, in case you've just tuned in, we are at the end of this Healthy Options. I cannot believe it. I say that every week, every month. (laughs) Our guest today on Healthy Options has been Dr. Susan Weary, geriatric psychiatrist and director of Aging Maine. Thank you again, Dr. Weary, for taking time with us to be with us today, taking the time. And again, the uh, website is Susan Weary, W-E- hry.com and there's also agingmaine.org if you missed any part of the show please check the public affairs section and at the healthy options archive at weru thanks again to joel mann and amy brown of weru for engineering support to petra hall for production assistance and as always thank all of you our WERU listeners and supporters. This is Rhonda Feynman wishing you the best in life.